Well, good morning. So like Rachel said, I am not Brian. Uh, my name is Warren. I uh, help out with college ministry at U of O campus. Um, and so most days you'll find me out there. And so if you're a little bit surprised uh, that I'm not Brian, uh, he is uh, taking a vacation with his family in Arizona. So Brian said he was going to watch this later. So Brian, hope your family is doing well in Arizona. You better not be watching this while you're on vacation. Um, thank you all so much for being here this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, uh, it's probably because I go to the second service usually. I'm not usually up this early uh, here at this service, and so I would love to get to know you after the service. Um, but before we start, uh, before we get into scripture, uh, why don't we take some time to pray together, uh, and then we can get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we uh, prepare to look at your word and prepare to see uh, what you have to say uh, God, I just pray that you would open our hearts. God, that you would teach us to turn and look to you, uh, teach us to view reality the way that you see things, um, to put our hope in you, to put our trust in you, um, and above all else, God, to just um, live for your kingdom and live for your glory and live for your sake. Um, King Jesus, uh, we pray that you would speak to us today uh, and show us how to apply your word to our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Brian, Brian asked me, Brian's been known he's going to go on vacation. This isn't a family emergency or anything. So he asked me a couple weeks ago if I would uh, speak today. And I said, yeah, I would, I would love to bless your family in that way and help out. Um, also, at the same time, unrelated to that, my family came to visit me. So my family's here from Texas and Louisiana visiting. Um, they were coming at the end of their spring break because my, my brother and sister go to Texas A&M. I knew they were coming at the end of their spring break, but somehow in my head that translated to, oh, they're coming the end of U of O spring break next week. And so for the past like three weeks, I thought I was going next Sunday. And so you're not going to see any slides. If you open up your sermon notes, you're not going to see a nice little bulleted outline or anything that Brian usually has. Uh, it's not because I was like unready, but it kind of is, right? <laughs> So there's not going to be any nice slideshow presentation or anything. I guess we'll go a little bit old school that way with a microphone and everything. Uh, but thank you so much for bearing with me as there are no notes to follow along with. Uh, if you've been here at Harvest with us the past couple of months, you know that we've been going through the book of Daniel together, right? Um, we've been talking about what it means to not just thrive, but survive through the trials. And I think that's a really amazing and really applicable conversation to have. Uh, because let's be honest, it is a lot easier to just step into autopilot, to cruise through life on the survive option, rather than grow and mature in the thrive option, right? Um, Pastor Brian's been a, doing a great job of looking at the life of Daniel, you know, one of the godliest examples that we have of a man who took the trials of life and didn't just thrive, didn't just coast through it, but actually thrived and grew and was able to share God's news with multiple kingdoms over his lifetime, right? Um, today, I'm not going to continue uh, with Daniel. I'll let Brian do that next week when he comes back. Uh, but I do want to keep pursuing this thread of thriving, not just surviving. Um, but I want to take it to a little bit of a broader scale, right? Because the question we've been looking at is, how do I thrive through our sufferings? Uh, I want to go a little bit deeper and just one level down and ask, why does God let us suffer in the first place? You know, what is the reason that um, God would even allow that? Um, so, you know, clearly not anything too deep, right? We're not jumping into deep waters here. Um, I told my wife what I was thinking to talk about. She's like, really? 
just that. Are you sure you don't want to talk about uh, anything else? Uh, and she's right. You know, this is fundamentally a question that we as humans have. Why do we suffer? Um, and so I don't want to pretend like I know the answer. I don't want to come up here and definitively say this is the one reason or, you know, a nice little bulleted list of three reasons, the exact only three reasons why we suffer. But I do think it's something that we as humans have to wrestle with. I think it's something we as humans ask naturally. Um, just last week, I was down south visiting my in-laws, my, my wife's family, and my eight-year-old nephew asked his dad, uh, why did God make sin? And I was kind of blown away. I was like, man, I thought you had to be at least like twice as old before you start, your sin awareness radar starts going off. I don't spend a lot of time with kids, and so having like an eight-year-old boy ask that question, I was like, man, I didn't know eight-year-olds could even formulate that thought, you know? I guess I need to spend more time with kids and figure out where they're at at different ages of life. Um, but I think that just goes to show how fundamentally our sin awareness is. We, we recognize something's wrong. We recognize something's broken in the world, even from a young age. Um, and so because that's something we're all asking, even though it is a deep question, even though it is a hard question, I do want to give some encouragement um, and, and talk with you guys today about what the Bible has to say about that. So the very first thing I want to look at is where the suffering comes from in the first place. Before, before we get to why God would allow us to suffer, we need to look at where it comes from in the first place. I think one of the clearest ways we can see that is by looking at our original design and environment. What does that mean? Why does that matter? Well, to get a life lesson, uh, I think it's best to turn to our American kitchen right now, right? Because um, you see, you look out there and you have a stovetop, right? And it gets hot, like really, really hot. Now, some things in your kitchen are meant to go on that stovetop. You have pots, pans, right? And you put them on that stove pot, and they're meant for that environment. They're designed for it. And so even though the coils get really, really hot, the pots and pans, they don't melt, they don't crack, they don't warp. They're perfectly fine on that pot, and in fact, become useful to us when they're on that pot, or when they're on, on that coil. Now, you take an oven mitt, or you take a washcloth, and you put it on that same hot coil, totally different situation, right? You better have a fire extinguisher on hand because it's not designed for that environment, right? When you use a washcloth for its design purpose, you don't have spontaneous combustion, right? You have, you have a really useful tool that cleans things up. But when you put it in a foreign environment for something that it wasn't designed to do, you have a problem on hand. For us, as Christians, we see our original design and purpose in our environment in the first pages of the Bible, right? Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tell us that God created us to be sinless, innocent, beings who are meant to obey and lovingly follow our Father, right? Uh, we're told that we're made in the image of God. We're meant to bear His image. That's our design. There was no death. There was no sin in our body. Ecclesiastes 3.11 goes so far as to say God put eternity on our hearts, right? And I think that's really beautiful because God created us, God intended us, God made us with eternity in mind. We're designed to operate as beings who reflect God's glory as his image bearers in an environment free from sin. That's our design and environment. But after Genesis 1 through 2, just around the corner comes Genesis 3. And like a bomb, the first sin bursts onto the scene and brings with it pain, suffering, death, right? All of a sudden, we have thorns, fangs, sicknesses that we have to deal with now. And that's why these things are so unnatural to us. When, when a friend dies, it's hard for us to process 
any death at all is hard for us to process because it's not natural to us. We say today, oh, it's just part of life. It's a circle of life. It's just a life cycle. But it's not, that's not how it was meant to be. Remember, we have eternity written on our hearts. That's what we're made for. And so when a death happens, that's unnatural. That's not something we were created to deal with. That's why it's so hard and so painful for us because you're not meant to go through that in the first place. So how did suffering first come into the world? How did it all happen? Because we as humans choose every day to live outside of our intended design as God's image bearers to live life in sin. Notice that I don't say Adam and Eve chose this. Man, they messed up. They did terrible. It's not a they did this, but a we do this every day. That sin that Adam and Eve opened the door to, yes, they were the first ones to do it, but we perpetrate that. We bring that out every single day, and we bring that into our environment ourselves. There's no one who's perfect. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Me, you, everyone in this room. And so if we're looking at where did, sin, where did suffering come from in the first place, that's the reason, is because we have sin in our life, messing up our design, and sin in our environment, messing up our world and home. But if you keep on reading the story of the Bible, hallelujah, the good news is that's not where the story ends. You know, the Bible doesn't just explain this is why suffering's here and just leave you with an explanation. God decided to do something about it, right? He didn't just leave us alone. He didn't just leave us enslaved to our fatally broken system. He came in to do something. He stepped down in the person of Christ. He lived that original image-bearing design that we could never live up to on our own. He paid the penalty for sin that we couldn't pay, and he rose into new everlasting life, right? That eternity that was written on our hearts, he rose up into that new life and offers that back to us now. So even though sin and death and suffering are, or I'm sorry, even though suffering and death are the fair and just consequences of our sin, Christ now stands with the offer of eternal life in heaven where we'll be freed from that in an environment that's perfect, right? He gives us a new life, a new heart, and brings us back into the image-bearing design we were intended for in the first place. But with that, that, in, that raises a really interesting question, right? If God is our loving Father, why would he allow Christians to suffer today? If, if we've been redeemed from the punishment of sin, and the punishment of sin is suffering here on earth, why do we still have suffering? It Was his redemption only partial? Is there something wrong with what God had intended? Um, it, it's a good question, right? Why do his ambassadors who bear his image today, right? That's our original design to, to be image bearers. Why do we suffer today? I can't pretend to stand up here and definitively say, I know the exact reason why God allows every single instance of suffering in your life. Um, and so I don't want you to walk away thinking that's what I've done today. Uh, but I do want to offer up some broad stroke reasons in the Bible why a loving God would allow his church to suffer, why a loving God would allow his redeemed to suffer. Um, so please don't come to me after the sermon and ask, hey, why did God let Sparky, my dog, run away when I was five? I'm not going to answer that question, okay? <laughs> um, I'm going to give you three broad stroke reasons from God's word why we see suffering today in our lives. And hopefully you can take something that I said and think, wow, okay, I can see how that would play into Sparky maybe running away when I was five. So to set the scene, uh, I want to read from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Um, I think this really sets a good framework um, of what the main idea is 
And then from there, we can see three different examples uh, following along. So reading from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 7 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what's that end result there in verse 7? That our faith, tested by trials, you know, the, the fire it goes through that suffering, may result in praise and glory and honor to God. Recall our original design as image bearers. Everything, now as Christians, even our sufferings and trials, bring glory and honor and praise to God. Somehow, in some way, it's a mystery that we can't explain, but these sufferings and trials we go through are not the fire that burn away the washcloths on the stove. It's the kind of fire that refines gold, purifies it, and makes it something honorable and good. To put it another way, uh, Jesus says in John 15, 1 through 2, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. For those of you who don't know what a vine dresser is, he's the guy who tends to the vine, who, like a gardener, right? He, he makes sure it's pr producing healthy fruit, right? I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear good fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Notice that this isn't about being saved. In the very next verse, John 15, 3, we're told that we're already clean. This isn't about becoming saved, but rather bearing more fruit as a saved, redeemed person. Pruning is not a painless process. If trees could talk, I'm sure that none of them would say, hey, me right here, you see this branch that's attached to me, the part of my body? Cut it off, no problem. You know, I think that, I, I mean, I have a cat, and when we had to trim her nails, right, it's, it's good for us to trim her claws, she runs away. You know, she does not like that. And, I mean, who among us would voluntarily go through a pruning process? But that's exactly what we're told that we need if we're going to be healthy, fruit-producing trees. And so uh, these verses right here, um, the ones I read from 1 Peter and John 15, they don't elaborate on exactly how uh, the pruning process or the suffering trials through fire, they don't elaborate on how it brings praise and glory and honor to God. It, they tell us that it does, and they tell us that we bear good fruit that is pleasing to God, but it doesn't exactly tell us how it all works. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at other places in the Bible and give three broad stroke examples of ways that uh, the Bible says that our suffering can result in God's praise. Um, I do want to say real quick, these are examples of reasons that, that God can do this. And so you might read your Bible and say, man, I found a fourth reason, a fifth reason, a sixth reason. And I agree with you, there are other reasons, right? But I think these are really broad categories um, and I hope that you can find some encouragement from that, but I don't want you to think I'm up here definitively saying, this is why we suffer. This is the only reason why we suffer. We're good? I'm not an expert, right? We're, we're all okay with that? I gave my disclaimer? Okay, good. Uh, so the first reason, uh, the first example of a reason that God would allow us to suffer is to cut sin out from our lives. Uh, I'm going to be hovering a lot in Hebrews chapter 12, I think it's a really powerful verse, a uh, powerful chapter on why we suffer, or an example of why we suffer. Uh, but uh, Hebrews 12, uh, verses 6, six through 11, uh, the author says this, The Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you like a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who discipline us, and we still respect them. Shall we not be more subject to the Father of spirits and live? Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's a lot. That's heavy, right? Even though we are made new in Christ, sin still clings closely to us. There's no one in here who, the moment you became saved, just stopped sinning. Sin was no longer an issue. Like, oh man, I've got it all figured out. And if that is you, I would like to talk because I want to know your secret, right? What did you do that I need to do, right? Sin is no longer our master as Christians, and it has lost the power to separate us from God. But that doesn't mean it's lost its temptation or its appeal, right? Sometimes sin is so tightly bound to us that God requires a pruning, right? A total clipping, a removal of that sin from our lives. So some examples, maybe you have one particular friend that you gossip with frequently and God decides to move them across the country. That, that pain of separation, that might be God helping you grow through that gossip process. Or maybe uh, you really irresponsibly gamble and unwisely spend your money, and so God allows you to lose a major bet. Like, it hurts in the moment, but maybe that teaches you a lesson. Hey, maybe I shouldn't be doing this with my money, right? Sometimes it's big and obvious, but other times we're stubborn, and we're thick-headed, and it takes God pushing over and over and over to get the lesson across, right? Sometimes it takes little thing, little thing, little thing, big thing, before we finally realize, oh, maybe God's saying something to me. Maybe I should look up and pay attention, right? Uh, to give a small example from my life, uh, I came into college with a lot of pride in my, my academics, my spirituality, my accomplishments. You know, I was pretty confident in who I was coming out of high school, right? Um, it took me hitting rock bottom my freshman year of college for me to finally turn to God and say, hey, I might have a pride issue going on here, Right? I failed a few classes, I lost my scholarship, I got kicked out of a club that I was in, uh, I lost a lot of friends. I went from knowing it all, coming out of school as a high school senior, I went from knowing it all to not even knowing if I would return to school in that fall, right? In a word, I was humbled, big time. But looking back, I could see that there were small opportunities to turn around and repent, to let go of my pride before I hit rock bottom. I had plenty of time to let go of the anchor that I was holding onto before I hit the bottom. Uh, but I don't have any bitterness towards God about that time in my life. Yes, it was painful. Like, I, I received the news that I was let go from a, from a club that I was a part of and lost a lot of friends on my birthday, and so that really stung. That was like, ooh, doesn't help, right? But I'm not bitter against God for any of that. I'm, I'm not angry at him. As I look back in hindsight, even though it was painful in that moment and even though it took me a lot of time to process and deal with it and think through it, I see things the way that Hebrews describes it, right? He disciplined me as a son because he loves me, because he wanted me to share the peaceful fruit of righteousness that resulted in me sharing in his holiness, right? There's an old sculpting joke that goes like this. A student of Michelangelo asked how he was able to carve the David statue, you know, that beautiful masterpiece, the David statue. 
It's simple, replied Michelangelo. I just chipped away at everything that wasn't David. In the same way, when, when we come to God, we have a lot of sin left in our lives. And sometimes we let go of it easily. Other times we don't let go easily. And when we have such a tight grip on sin, when we, we refuse to let go, it takes some pruning. It takes some chipping and sculpting to cut away everything that isn't Christ. But bearing good fruit isn't just about cutting out sin. I really wish that Christ-likeness was just about self-denial. Like, if I could bite off my tongue and then suddenly get rid of anger, man, I would volunteer for that surgery right now, I'll be honest. <laughs> or if I could cut out my eyes and get rid of envy, man, I'd be the first one to sign up, because if Christ-likeness was just about losing, man, that'd be, the, that'd be easy. Right? All you have to do is just cut things off until you've got nothing left. But we're called to bear good fruit. Just because you're not bearing bad fruit doesn't mean that you're bearing good, sweet, healthy fruit, right? A bear tree is not the like a barren tree, not a tree with a bear on it, right? But a barren tree is not the same as a tree that's producing good fruit, right? As Christians, we're not called to moral neutrality, right? No good, no evil, just existing, right? Otherwise, you just sleep all day and that's Christ-likeness, right? Um, for the believer, we're not called to moral neutrality, but instead to reflect God's character and his nature, to be his image bearers, right? So this brings me to my second reason why God might allow believers to suffer. It builds our character to be like God. When we suffer, it not only prunes sin from our life, but also draws us into deeper intimacy with Christ. Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5 tells us, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. It's one of my favorite verses, one of them that I've memorized by heart. Because we know that suffering and trials are a sweet time of turning to the Lord for daily bread, of learning of the great hope that we have in Him. It's the kind of hope that doesn't put us to shame. It's the hope and joy of not just knowing that God can provide, but experiencing the ways that he does provide in every tribulation. When we suffer, especially when we have prolonged suffering, we quickly realize the limitation of our humanness. We realize that we can't solve all our own problems. We realize that our circumstances are not in our control, but instead are in God's, and we turn to him for our joy and for our hope. Notice here, Paul doesn't just tell us to remain steadfast, just endure through it all. He tells us that we can rejoice in our suffering. It's kind of an out-of-place word, right? Like, man, you're suffering? Go ahead and rejoice in that suffering. That's odd. That's out of place. That's not human. It's Christ-like. It's God living in us, right? We're able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, through the deepest, most engulfing and daunting of sorrow, with joy because the Holy Spirit is in us, right? It's not just that God is with us, which he certainly is, but it's not just that. He's also in us through the Holy Spirit, working to mold us, to guide us, to push us towards holiness. And when we endure in our suffering, the great vine dresser produces the fruit, fruit that sometimes looks like patience, faith, trust, humility, hope, certainty, courage, these are fruit that are produced because we've endured through suffering, because we've drawn closer to God. But like any other fruit, these virtues aren't meant for our own good pleasure, right? This is a funny thing that I realized about the, the Bible, and you know, the Bible talks about fruit all the time, right? But think about it. 
what tree is there that ever eats its own fruit? If anyone out here knows anything about botany and you know of a tree that does that, please share with me because I think that's really interesting. I can't think of a tree that eats its own fruit. An apple tree you know, grows apples, big juicy red apples, and it falls to the ground and someone else eats it. It's not for the tree itself, it's for someone else, right? And so in the same way, just as fruit is grown by trees to be enjoyed by others, so also the fruit brought about by suffering in our lives is intended to glorify God and be a blessing to others, those around us. This is the third reason I'm going to give of an example of why God might allow believers to suffer. As we suffer, we learn sympathy, we learn empathy, we learn compassion, lessons that we learn best by experience. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, Paul tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction, right? That's good news. He comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which with, with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. Man, that's a lot, right? As we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort. When we suffer, when we're afflicted, we not only receive the comfort from the Father, right? The verse says he's the God of all comfort, right? But we also learn how to share that very same comfort with those who have also gone through similar trials. Think about it for a second, right? I talked about our design being image bearers, right? We are Christians, which literally means little Christ, right? We're, when you say, I'm a Christian, you're saying, I want to act like an ambassador of Christ. I am a little Christ. Even though we now strive to live up to that image-bearing design, we still live in a world of people who don't, people who are lost, people who have rejected that image-bearing design and say, I want to image-bear for myself or for my favorite sports team or for my political party. I don't want to image-bear for God. I want to live for whatever else you're living for, right? How effective would be we be as ambassadors in reaching those who are lost if we didn't suffer like they suffer, right? If life became perfect sunshine, roses, nothing bad ever happened the moment you put your faith in Jesus, how can you reach your lost friend who's going through pain, right? We're called to be the very body of Christ here on earth. In his flesh, Jesus himself suffered. He suffered greatly, right? We, we have crosses all around, right? We have cross there, probably one on top of the building. Some of you might have cross necklaces. We remember his greatest moment of suffering, right? If he suffered so much in the flesh, literally, how can we, who are, his, who are his body here on earth now, not suffer, right? Like, it wouldn't make sense for us to say we're the body of Christ and not suffer when his own body suffered so greatly. And this isn't a negative thing. The suffering of Christ, the suffering that he went through, was not something that we're supposed to look at negatively, but something positive, something that the early church actually worshiped in him for his goodness. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells us, we do not have a great high priest, talking about Jesus, right? We don't have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. Because he suffered, he was better able to sympathize and minister to us. Shouldn't we have the same mindset? One of my favorite books of all time is a book called Cry the Beloved Country. And in it, one of the main characters says, 
I have never thought that a Christian would be free of suffering, for our Lord himself suffered. I have come to believe that he suffered, not to save us from our suffering, but to teach us how to bear our sufferings. For he knew that there was no life without suffering. If God suffered so that he might draw closer to us, we too must suffer to draw closer to others and bear his image and be his church, his body broken for us. Okay, so I've just given you three really broad stroke reasons why God might allow Christians to suffer. Again, this isn't an exhaustive list of every reason God would allow us to suffer, but I hope that encourages you to to rethink your suffering, uh, to view things through the lens of Christ, through the lens of how he sees reality. And that's encouraging in some ways, but in the moment, like right in that very moment when you're going through suffering, knowing why you might be suffering doesn't exactly help. It can help process pain in the past, right? When you're looking back, like my freshman year of college, I can say, okay, now I can see why this and this and this had to happen in order to lead me here. But in that very moment, when you are going through the suffering, knowing, hey, someday in the future, this is going to help you comfort someone else, isn't comforting to you in that very moment, right? Um, so at the risk of sounding repetitive, you know, I, 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 I guess I'm just following in a good Baptist tradition, right? Making bullet point after bullet point after bullet point, right? <laughs> I'm going to give you four, four encouragements from the Bible when you're in the moment of suffering, right? Because it's not just that God gives us the reason that we suffer and say, this is why it's happening. Deal with it. Like, he gives us encouragement to help us endure through the suffering and to not just survive and endure, but instead to persevere and to thrive, right? And so... Uh, again, this is not an exhaustive list. The Bible gives tons of comfort to those who are in suffering, uh, but these are the four big ones that I saw. So first of all, first reason, of, or first, not reason, first encouragement to those who are in suffering. God has a plan for our lives, even when we don't see it. You know, sometimes we can look at events going on in our life and say, okay, this is the result of my thick-headedness, my, my stubbornness, the sin in my life. This is obviously God pruning and cutting something out of my life. But more often than not, we can't make heads or tails of what we're experiencing. Real-world experiences don't always fit nice and neatly into our Baptist bullet points that I was talking about, right? Real life doesn't always work that way. Sometimes, if we're really fortunate, it does, but not always do sermon bullet points cover everything in life. And that's okay. Brothers and sisters, I have some encouragement for you. If you think long and hard about finding the reason for your suffering, and you keep on coming up empty, you can't, you can't understand why you went through what you went through, that's okay. You haven't failed. This isn't a knock on you or saying you're any less godly or any less spiritual for any reason, right? But the encouragement is that even when we don't understand it, even when we can't comprehend it, we can know and trust that there is a loving God who knows all, who controls all, who plans all, and he knows that there is a reason that you went through this. Look at Joseph, right, from the book of Genesis. His brothers sold him into slavery He is thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit, and yet he's still able to confidently say, what you intended for evil, God worked out for good, right? Or look at Habakkuk, one of my personal favorite prophets in the Bible. You know, he looked around at the sin and suffering going around him, and he was able to recognize it's because Israel has been sinning. And so he was confident, he was hopeful. He's like, God, there's definitely going to be time that we can repent. You know, there's definitely time to turn the ship around. And God comes back to him with a vision and says, you know, things are going to get a lot worse before they get a lot better. Habakkuk, you think there's time to turn the ship around. I'm telling you there's a shipwreck in your future, and it's going to be bad. 
like really, really bad. And so despite all that, despite God giving him visions of a future that was dark and grim, Habakkuk is able to finish out his book with this. And I I think it's one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Uh, Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vine. The produce of the olive fail. The fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice. There's that word again. Rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18. Right, that word rejoice is so out of place if we view suffering as just it happens. You know, oh, well, it, tough stuff. It happens, you know. But when we remember that there is a loving God, when we take refuge in him, it's perfectly natural to rejoice in our suffering. As Christians, we're not guided by our feelings or our circumstances. Neither pain, the lowest of valleys, nor happiness, the highest of mountains, should be the rudder guiding our hope, right? But it should be the Lord God who moves on behalf of his people for good. God's made two great promises to us concerning this, both of which are pretty well recognized. But the first one is Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And we have Romans 8, 28. We know that God works all things for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose. Friends, these two promises, they sound really incredible. They're really beautiful. You know, plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, right? These promises weren't made in good times when everything was peachy and simple and easy, right? These promises were made to a nation that was in exile, right? They were literally slaves to their captors. And this promise was given to a church that was facing persecution. The promise of God doesn't negate suffering and pain. The promise of God doesn't wipe it all away and suddenly you don't feel the sadness anymore. But the promise of God prompts us to put our faith and hope in him who sovereignly reigns over all and who has a plan and who has a purpose. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand it, he has a reason behind our suffering and we can put our hope in that. The second piece of encouragement that I want to give you in the midst of suffering uh, is to remind yourself of your true home. We're not citizens of this earth. We're rather exiles and sojourners in a foreign land. Remember earlier I mentioned we suffer when we're outside of our intended environment? The earth today, as it is right now, is not our intended environment. This is not where we're supposed to be. Even though we now live out our lives here on this earth, it's not meant for us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11, we're told, we have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay, which I think refers to our bodies, right? We are the jars of clay. We're dust of the earth, right? We have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal lives. To the believer, what matters most is not the jar itself, our our external physical body, right? Anything that happens here, that's not what matters most. It's the gospel message, that good news, that treasure that we hold inside. 
And because the world can never destroy the gospel of the king, we can boldly endure, as the verse says, we can boldly endure being afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Despite what the world, you know, this, this ill-fitting environment that we're in, despite what they do to us, it can never break the Holy Spirit or the gospel that lives in us. Our goal, our mission, our reward is not bound to this earth. If our purpose is to build the kingdom of God, then earthly measures are not enough to measure our reward. For this reason, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, Jesus tells us, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There it is again, like the rejoice, blessed, that's out of place. That's really funny, right? Blessed are you when people do these three t- terrible things to you, right? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. To the ones who recognize that earth is not their home, the sufferings of this world hold no lasting, meaningful weight. If God has a plan to work all things for good, and he promises heavenly blessings for our mission here on earth, we can take comfort in knowing that our treasure is stored, where no man, where no demon, where no power at all can take it away or destroy it. But how can we be so certain? How can we know that it'll all work out? This brings me to my third point of encouragement. We already know the ending, right? We have a God who has written the end from the beginning. He established it all before it even started. And he hasn't left us in, left us in the dark. He's let us in on the secret, right? And we've been reading the book of Daniel. We've been getting to all the, the crazy prophecies going on and the, the weird dreams that Daniel's been having. And you know, it is a little bit confusing. That's why I'm not preaching on Daniel up here, right? Uh, I don't have Brian's skill. But that's good news. For as confusing as it is, for as much as we struggle to understand it, God understands it and he knows that ending. I think a lot of times we have this idea of a cosmic battle between the devil and God and two forces fighting each other, good versus evil, who's going to win? Come back to find out more. Tune in next Saturday, right? That's not how God views it. In the last book of the Bible, John tells us, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as his God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain evermore. These will be former things that have passed away. That's Revelation 21, 3 through 4. For those of us who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, an inheritance of unity with God awaits, a perfect return to our original design, into an environment prepared specifically for us. Hallelujah, that is great news, right? As we look forward to the glory that awaits us, let's put our current suffering in its right place and rejoice in the God who is carefully working to prune us and to mold us into the image of his son, cutting away the vine so that we may bear great fruit. We may not know the exact way, the exact reason that our particular suffering in this very moment fits into God's great overarching story, but we can have confidence that he will vindicate and justify our suffering in the scope of his grand master plan. When we take it this perspective, we're given clarity of vision to see things through the lens of eternity. Uh, returning real quick to 2 Corinthians 4, in verse 17, Paul writes, this light momentary affliction, again, funny phrasing, not how I would have worded my affliction, right? This light momentary affliction 
is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen now, but to the things that are unseen. Light and momentary, you know, light and momentary affliction. Those aren't words that come from, you know, some privileged rich guy living in an ivory tower, you know, separated from the rest of society. He wasn't living on the hundredth floor of some skyscraper looking down on all us mere peasants, right? This was written by Paul, a man who was beaten, exiled, imprisoned, shipwrecked, eventually martyred, right? Like, this was not a guy who had an easy life, right? And yet he's able to say, light, momentary affliction. Despite everything, his eyes were not cast down, looking at his own jar of clay, his own body, but instead on the weight of glory for those who believe, instead at the message that was held within the jar, right? The Holy Spirit, the gospel working in and through him. God doesn't just tell us, oh, endure, for the, endure, endure till the end, hope for the best, hope it all works out, but he promises heavenly reward and blessing to the one who endures. In James 1.12, he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, under his suffering, right? The trial, the suffering, the fiery furnace, right? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So as we endure through our suffering, remember to keep your eyes on your true home, your heavenly inheritance that awaits you. This is not an empty promise, but the comforting, binding seal of a king who is faithful to keep his word. This brings me to my final point of encouragement, the church itself. I have good news for you. You are not the first Christian. <laughs> That's good news. You're not the first person to suffer uh, the pain of, for righteousness sake, undergoing the painful sculpting and pruning process, right? There are brothers and sisters around you who can point to examples of God's faithfulness in their own lives and maybe offer an outside perspective on how God might be working in your life. This encouragement is given to us most clearly in Hebrews 11. Remember I said I was going to get back to that, right? Uh, Hebrews 11:32. we're going to be reading all the way to 12:4. but um, the author says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me. Time is failing me right now. I'm running out of time. <laughs> time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephath, and David, of Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced judge justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies into flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again into a better life. Others suffered, mocking, flogging, and even chains of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, those of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains, in the dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through, through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, the cloud of witnesses is those people we just described, right? Since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, that sin which, so which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and author of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There it is again, that, that word joy, the joy of the cross, that torture device, right? The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. We're surrounded by a great number of witnesses who testify to God's goodness through suffering, both, both past, right here in the Bible, right? We just saw some of those in chapter 11, and in the present. Look at Joseph. Joseph was humble. His pride was chipped away even as he sat in jail, his own personal rock bottom, right? Habakkuk, Habakkuk learned to trust God. Even when things looked dark and scary, even though he couldn't change the circumstances around him, he put in his trust in God's grand master plan. Look at Daniel, as we've been studying. Through every trial he went through, through um, you know, being put in the lion's den, through uh, having kings who were threatening to kill him, right? He bore great fruit. And many kingdoms were impacted because of his faithfulness. Peter went from denying Christ to rejoicing as he himself was crucified for his king. Even Jesus, our Lord himself, came to earth as our great high priest and sympathized with our weakness. God's church doesn't end on the last page of the Bible, though. You know, where the Bible ends is not the end of the church. Today, around us, we have the church. You, me, Everyone who calls on the name of Christ is the church today. If you have a story of God's faithfulness through hard time, don't be ashamed to share it. Instead, boldly boast in your trials so that Christ might be magnified in all. Who knows, maybe God will use you to encourage someone in this very room today. And if you are going through the shadow of death, if you're going through that valley right now, look around you. There's brothers and sisters men and women who have also experienced the pains of living in this ill-fitting environment. There's not a single one of us today who hasn't gone through some sort of suffering in some way, right? When we share in that, when we participate in that together, we're able to mutually build up and encourage each other with our life stories. I think that's why God has given us the church. You're not the first Christian, and you're not the only Christian. You're not meant to do this alone. The weight and pain of suffering isn't something you're meant to bear by yourself, but something meant to be distributed across the backs of your fellow church members. So as you go through the rough waters of this world, let's look to scripture and let's look to the church for examples of perseverance through suffering and encouragement in the pain. At Harvest, we like to end with two prayers, a prayer of salvation and a prayer of discipleship. Um, if today you want to grab a hold of that promise, if today you want to grab a hold of, of what Christ has promised to those who love him, you know, that eternal inheritance, the pain and suffering that has a meaning, that has a purpose, you want to be part of that grand overarching plan that he has, uh, I'd encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Um, Jesus, I just want to come before you today and recognize you are God. I am not. God, I haven't been bearing your image. I've been living apart from the design that you made for me. God, I want to return to that. Uh, God, wash me clean of my sin. Um, God, I'm so sorry for that sin, but I know that you can wash me clean. Uh, bring your Holy Spirit into me. Fill my jar of clay with the gospel that can never be broken by the world. Um, King Jesus, thank you so much for your love and your mercy and for your death and resurrection on the cross. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, I would love to talk with you. Whether you're online watching or uh, here in person today, talk to someone uh, send us a message if you have to, uh, but just share that with somebody. And we also like to pray a prayer of discipleship, right? Um, if you here today are impacted by the sermon and would like to apply that to your life, if you'd like to follow along with Christ in discipleship, pray something like this with me. 
King Jesus, you are king. You are sovereign. You are holy. God, you have a plan. You've established the end from the beginning. God, I've experienced suffering in my life. I've experienced pain in my life. And I know it's for my good. And I know it's for your glory. And I know it's for me to share with others around me. God, help me to take the lens of Christ, the lens of eternity, and see things the way you would see them. God, help me take the fruit that I grow in my life and share it with others, to be an encouragement to others, to those around me. God, thank you for having a purpose for me. Thank you for having a design for me. And thank you so much for having an environment prepared for me, a place where there will be no more suffering in the future. Um, But God, even as I live today as an exile, help me to be a good ambassador, a good lighthouse, a good little Christ uh, as I live up to what you've given me. King Jesus, thank you again so much for your cross. uh, And thank you so much again for your resurrection. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.